Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. July 4th, Independence Day is approaching. And this week, we're talking about the American dream. This does not feel like a celebratory moment for the American dream, though. And so we're taking a hard look at how our reality measures up to that dream. That famous promise that no matter how poor or down on your luck you start out, you can earn a good living in America through hard work. Policy wonks and and people that are really good at looking at systems and statistics, they call this idea social mobility. And our guest today is one of those policy wonks who likes his stats, as you'll hear later, and he's an expert on social mobility. He's Anthony Carnevale, director of Georgetown University's Center on Education and the Workforce. Back during the Clinton administration, he was the chairman of the National Commission for Employment Policy, so this is something he's thought a lot about. He argues that education plays a more important role in social mobility than ever in this country. But he believes higher education is not doing enough to make the American dream possible. In fact, he worries that the top colleges, and really kind of all selective colleges, have become places of figurative gates blocking social mobility, and instead serve to fast-track the elite to ever higher status. Often the sorting of who gets in comes down to race and class, through college admissions and on who's prepared for these selective colleges. In other words, this is a systemic story that goes all the way back to kindergarten or how kids are tracked throughout school and the resources their schools have. Carnivali makes the case in a new book called The Merit Myth, How Our Colleges Favor the Rich and Divide America, which he co-wrote with Peter Schmidt and Jeff Stroll. You can sense the tone of this book through its introduction, which has the heading, Jarred Awake from the American Dream. And the story begins with a scene of the torch-lit white supremacist rally that happened at UVA in 2017. Of course, this made major headlines and was really shocking to a lot of people. I started by asking why Carnavali began the book at this ugly moment. The events uh, at the University of Virginia surprised most Americans, I think. They saw the tiki torches and... uh, ask themselves, is this really who we are? Uh, And the answer in part is, it's who we've become. Uh, We've become very divided, and our education system plays a big part in that. Uh, It didn't always, back in the 1970s, 60s, 50s, when there were lots of jobs for people who were high school graduates, and they were good jobs. In fact, if you declare a good job as a job that makes more than $55,000 a year, well, back in those days, 70% of those jobs only required high school. Uh, Now, only about 15% of jobs that are good jobs in current dollars, you could make that kind of money, a very small share of those jobs now go to high school graduates and those who get them are virtually all male, incidentally. There really isn't much out there in the economy for a high school graduate who is female. So we've built a social and racial set of divisions around access to education, especially college education. One fact that, for me, uh, is most convincing in this is that In America, it's a lot better to be rich than smart. Uh, 
It's not about merit. Here, Carnavale gives a statful example. A student from a low-income family who has top test scores has only a 31% chance of graduating from one of the top 500 colleges, even though this person has some of the very best test scores. They just have a one in three chance of finishing. Meanwhile, if a student from a family in the top 25% of income has an IQ at the bottom 25% of all students, that person's chance of graduating from college and getting a good job is 60%. In other words, the odds are that a low-achieving student from a well-off family is probably going to make it. So in the end, the American system is rigged. There's no way around it. So why do you think that's so pervasive that we that, that this merit idea continues? Because I, I still feel like, um, you know, this, that might still be an argument that surprises people. Why does it, why do we hang on to this notion? We are, as we discuss in the book, we are a, an individualistic culture. Uh, we believe in individualism above all else. And we believe that individuals make their own future. Uh, we look at individuals without considering their context uh, in the sense that Every individual, any individual, can struggle through and uh, do well. But in the end, um, the exception proves the rule. That does happen oftentimes, and those stories are celebrated in our media. Uh, the Barack Obamas are highly celebrated. Uh, in our families, we all have our family stories about um, our moms and dads or brothers and sisters or grandfathers that came here with nothing and made their way. Uh, it's part of the American myth, uh, the notion that you can come here with nothing and gain greatly. And that was really true in our early history for white men, only for white men. But white men could come here and all the way up until uh, the late uh, 19th century until the Industrial Revolution, it really was true. We had this huge expanse of land. Uh, and in a way, uh, all white men had access to that, and uh, we had a whole continent to devour. Uh, but after the Industrial Revolution, that changed. But still then, uh, a good industrial job was a good job, and that was true until the early 1980s. Uh, but since then, in order to get a good job, you've got to get some college, uh, preferably a four-year degree at a selective university. So that's what sorts us now. If you look back to the beginning of the latest spike in income inequality in America, which began in 1983 after the 1980-81 recession, uh, at that point, uh, we began to the value of college education started to rise. Um, in 1983, if you went to college, you had about a 30% earnings advantage over somebody who only went to high school. Well, that advantage has now climbed to 85% uh, and comes to more than a million dollars a year. And when you look at uh, elite colleges, it's much more than that in elite professions. So, uh, we built a system based on higher education that sorts us. It's an institutional 
class and race mechanism that pretty well guarantees who'll make it and who won't. And of course, there are always exceptions, but the exceptions prove the rule. We and many others covered the college admissions scandal um, where, you know, the, the FBI had this varsity blues or the federal investigators kind of found out this this scam that was going on where um, wealthy individuals were were buying effectively slots in elite colleges um, through the various mechanisms of either having someone take a test for their child and getting a great SAT score that the student didn't earn or getting them considered as an athlete, even though they weren't an athlete. So um, it got a lot of attention and put a lot of attention on, you know, kind of this question of, of whether our system is fair, the college admission system is fair. But what what do you think the lesson from that scandal is? Or are, are people taking the right lesson from it? I think what the Varsity Blues scandal really showed that it is the tip of the iceberg uh, in a system where uh, inequality drives opportunity in much more powerful ways in terms of who gets to go to college and who gets to go to which college. So in many respects, the the Varsity Blues scandal uh, really was just a, a ridiculously exaggerated version of the way the system works anyway. As it stands now, uh, the chances of people who come from low-income or minority families uh, to get into selective colleges are very, very low and very artificial. That is, we know that anybody who scores a 1,000 on the SAT or 22 on the ACT, which are the, the average scores generally every year, Anybody who get any average student out of high school has about an 85% chance of graduating from one of the 500 most selective colleges in America if they went. But they're not going to get in. Uh, you have no chance of getting into a selective college, uh, even though you could probably graduate. Now, if you get a 1,200 score on the SAT, you've got a much better chance of graduating. It's more like 95%. But the difference between 80 85%, and 95 is much, much less than we make it out to be. These, uh, there are every year in the United States 500,000 young people graduate from high school with uh, average scores on the SAT uh, and the ACT and when we check 10 years later, which is as far as the data allows us to follow them, when we check, we see that none of those 500,000 have any degree at all, a four-year degree, a two-year degree, or a certificate. So what's happened is that testing has become a bit of a dodge. It's a way to cover up what's going on underneath. Uh, we all go to kindergarten and then through grade school, and we actually know different kinds of people if we're in public schools, but the great sorting occurs the day we sit down with the, those number two pencils and fill in the, uh, the little sheets of paper, I guess, on computer now. <laughs> Let me ask you um, about the, the recent change we're seeing since the pandemic has hit, and a lot of colleges, a lot of selective colleges, 
are going testosterone or saying they're kind of going to move away from the SAT and the ACT, which, you know, you're, as you're saying, that, that sounds like it would be a good thing as far as trying to address or reform the system. But do you think that will help? So far, making the SAT optional, which others have already done and the effects have been studied, ends up being more of a feel-good thing than anything else. That is, again, it's the business model. The way you run an expensive college uh, is you first let in everybody who has the money and can pay full price. You get as much of that as you can because the prices are very high. And then with maybe 50 or 60% of the students who are upper middle class, you make a bargain. That is, it's called merit aid. Uh, it has nothing to do with merit. It has to do with uh, making a deal with the parents to let the kids in. Everybody gets a little merit aid, and so you fill in 50 to 60% of your class with those folks, and then with whatever is left over, you uh, let in kids who are athletes or can play the tuba or at least carry it in the marching band, uh, and you uh, let in the children of uh, the faculty, uh, you let in anybody who is a potential contributor or has already contribu- contributed to the college, and you let in the legacies, all of the people who have relatives that went to the college. And in that case, you're essentially running a dynasty. It's not really a merit-based system at all. So for the most part in American colleges, the studies of institutions that have dropped the SAT have all said the same thing, and that is what happens is more rich kids get in, more legacies, and more exceptional kids who uh, have special talents or are athletes and so on. So until the business model changes, uh, getting rid of the SAT won't matter very much. There are some um, points in your book where you look at what could be done, and you call for pretty radical, some would say, reform of, of the higher ed system. What what do you see as the most important change you'd make first, right, if you could, in um, in the many things you sort of call out as, as a challenge to this idea of, of having higher ed be helping social mobility? I would not rely much on the elite schools. They've built a business model where they're spending 50, 60, and 70 grand a year, even more, uh, on the kids who go there. Uh, and the, they essentially are stuck with a model that says, uh, in the end, what you're looking for are kids with high test scores who are legacies uh, or have some other uh, way of getting into your institution uh, and if you're going to be that high price model, uh, those that are private and work that way, I would pretty much leave them alone. I would demand that they have at least 20 to 30 percent of their students um, come from lower income families. They are private only up to a point. They get lots of federal money. They get their not-for-profit status, which is worth a lot of money. And so they should serve some public purpose. What's that percentage at now? You're, you're calling for 20 to 30 percent. What, what is it at now for those types of colleges? It is generally low. It's 5 to 10 percent, although there are notable exceptions. 
the women's colleges uh, do much better than that. Uh, Berkeley is a college that does much better than that. But still, uh, if you run across the top colleges in the country, there there tends to be uh, relatively low Pell Grant participation. I mean, if you're selling an expensive product, poor people aren't your market. Uh, I mean, if if your if your product costs sixty grand, uh, you don't want to see a lot of poor people coming through the door, uh, and you don't. Uh, you ensure you don't to use test scores and other kinds of sorting mechanisms to make sure you don't. So my biases are that all of this needs to be fixed in the public institutions. And so, you, is is free college? Part of that is is subsidizing free college for all, which has been called upon by some candidates for office and some lawmakers. I think free college is a good idea uh, in the sense, but I would uh, amend it, as is always amended when people propose it, if you look at the fine print, that it's free college for uh, people who have the least money and can afford high tuitions least. That is, I don't see the need to let rich kids into public institutions for free, that already goes on to some extent. Every state, or most states, have a one uh, high, uh, so highly selective college, the University of Virginia, Michigan, etc. Uh, and those colleges are very much like the selective private colleges. Uh, and they're a good bargain because they do get state subsidies, so they're just as good as colleges that cost 30 and 40% more in the private sector. So if you're smart and use your money wisely, you send your uh, kid whatever kind of money you got to one of those colleges because it's a good bargain. It's sort of a corrupt bargain uh, between governors, legislatures, uh, and well-to-do parents in that there's a one or two uh, very selective public colleges in a state that are reserved for them and general, uh, in general get two to three times the state aid that the other colleges do. So uh, I, I would put an end to that uh, and demand that the colleges look more like the states that they're in. But otherwise, uh, if you're going to have free college, it ought to be done in a, in a progressive fashion. That is, it ought to be most free to the people who have the least now, one of the things I was struck by, it sounds like your argument is partly that this merit idea, not only is it not true that we have a merit-based system in higher ed, but that because people do think there's a merit system, that actually causes some some negative consequences for how people behave once they leave college. Yes, and in, in, in a sense, and in fact, uh, rightfully so, people who go to school, ace the tests, go on to elite colleges. Uh, they did the work, and they deserve the uh, reward they get in access to selective institutions. Uh, but what it has created in America is a perpetual uh, standing aristocracy that passes its power and uh, its money from generation to generation. Uh, and and it hides behind the merit myth, which is that uh, people who don't get good jobs, don't go to good colleges, or don't go to college, it's their own fault. Uh, but the data says that's not true. That is, in the end, 
the system is a set of institutions, interlocking institutions from uh, the community you're raised in, the value of the house uh, you own, the tax base in that community, um, the quality of the K-12 education in that community, all that leverages you uh, into this permanent aristocracy. The fact that it is permanent is what makes it uh, is ma- Ill- makes it illegitimate. There is, and it, there is the race dimension to this has only gotten worse. Um, white people lived in inner cities and worked in inner cities in the 1940s and 50s. Um, black people moved into inner cities chasing decent manufacturing jobs during the war and uh, after, but then the white people. Uh, fled to the suburbs. They took the jobs with them. The jobs moved to the suburbs as well. They built strong tax bases and sent their kids to highly funded, very good K-12 schools. So when America changed in the 80s so that uh, the next hurdle to gain access to the upper middle class was to go to college, the white population was ready. So we had a second white flight, not so much from downtown to the suburbs, but white flight to the BA. White flight to the BA, the bachelor's degree. I have to cut in and note that essentially this is comparing selective colleges to a kind of gated community. He's arguing they're there to exclude. Right now, the country, after the George Floyd killing by police that's caused all this uproar and, and questioning around the role of you know, racism in America and whether, how much institutional that is. And since a lot of what we're talking about now is, is a kind of institutional racism in the higher ed system, do you, do you think that these questions around the, that started around policing but have really, you know, there's kind of this discussion of race in America that, that is louder than I've seen in a while, do you think that will have any impact in the higher ed space? Not unless somebody changes the business model, not unless somebody changes the rules, not unless we decide that we are in fact going to build K-12, K-12 educational system that really does uh, provide equal spending between rich and poor, uh, not unless uh, we open up colleges more and more to uh, minority students uh, the virus and the current environment uh, seems to be raising that issue, but it is uh, uh, given that education is really the key variable now in terms of people's long-term economic potential. Uh, changing the education system is very difficult. The law uh, says we can't, that is, each education district is essentially on its own, runs on its own money. Uh, There have been movements by states to uh, equalize spending across districts, but that's essentially failed. Uh, And so we have inequality in an apparatus that runs K-12 through higher education and into the labor market. And uh, changing that would take a great deal of energy and money and patience. And I just don't know that we have energy, money, and patience to get it done. One hopes that the public is learning that inequality in America 
is more about the way institutions work than it is about the way people feel about each other. That is, people can have terrible motivations with respect to each other, but so long as uh, those motivations don't turn into um, institutional behaviors that repeat irrespective of people's biases and values, uh, then we're not going to get much change. The institutional changes are hard to come by. So what is your best hope from, you know, that that could come out of, of the book? Is it really just calling attention to the fact that this, that merit is a myth is, and that's the beginning or, or what is the, what is the hope? The reason we wrote this book was because all the talk of inequality uh, hasn't really hasn't really moved the needle in people's minds, and that's in part because Americans firmly believe, and it's deeply rooted in our culture, that people get what they deserve, and that if you have a lousy job or a lousy education or you're in other some kind of uh, difficulty, it's your own fault. After all, uh, the schools are open. You can go there and do well. Um, we tend to see individuals without providing... Uh, any kind of context as to what it takes to do that. So I thought, we thought, that the essential question has become the fact that given that higher education is now more important in people's economic lives than ever before, uh, that the merit myth itself has become something of a cover-up uh, that allows people who do succeed to believe they did it on their own. Now, to some extent, of course, they did. Uh, but they did it because the context in which they lived uh, allowed them to. They were raised in an upper-middle-class cocoon uh, that allowed them to meet the new standards for work and learning. And I think until we get straight in our minds that this is not just about individual people uh, and stop celebrating the people who beat the odds, which by definition, mathematically, if you beat the odds, what that tells you is it's the odds that really matter, uh, that we need to start focusing on the odds uh, and thinking in institutional terms as to how we solve these problems. Well, I think I'll leave it at that. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your thoughts today and talk about the book. Thank you. My pleasure. So the goal of the book is to change the narrative and look at what the stats and charts tell us about who wins and loses in American higher education. Maybe there's more openness to that in the wake of the recent killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis that sparked a nationwide debate and some serious soul-searching about systemic racism and its causes. The merit myth ends with a warning. It says, if we don't become a republic of education, where schools and colleges promote common good in ways that justify faith in our system of government and in our institutions, we risk ceasing to be a republic at all. This has been the Ed Search Podcast. Each week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you missed last week's, you might want to check that out. We talked to a first-generation student um, about the challenges of fitting in when no one else in your family has gone to a college, and about the value of college and, and student debt. You should check it out. If you like the show... Please share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll subscribe if you don't already so you don't miss future episodes. This one was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. 
You can reach me on Twitter at JR Young or by email at jeff at edsearch.com. Thanks, as always, to Tony Wan, our tireless, fearless, and wonderful managing editor. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.